Welcome to the latest episode of the podcast, The Shift. I'm Shay Candish, the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association's General Secretary and the host of this show. Today, I'm joined by nurse practitioner and proud Wanarua and Gurungai woman, Leslie Salem. Leslie's been a nurse practitioner for the past 20 years and found her love of nursing purely by accident when she lied about wanting to be a nurse just to get a job at Cessnock District Hospital straight out of school. As a nurse practitioner, Leslie's passionate about providing holistic care to patients and improving chronic health outcomes for First Nations people. It's this passion that's led Leslie at the age of 48 to decide working in Aboriginal medical services as a nurse practitioner. Just a heads up for everyone listening today, we're recording this with Leslie on the train, so the audio is a bit iffy at times, but we've done our best to bring it together for you. Welcome to the show, Leslie. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's great to have you. You're our first First Nations person on our podcast. Um, can you tell us a bit about what it was like for you growing up as a Wanarua and Gurungai woman? Uh, what was your experience like? Um, although we knew we had um, Aboriginal cousins and that, uh, we uh, we were initially brought up um, thinking that we were Spanish. It was the only way, um, me not realising as a child, uh, about the stolen generations and everything. And that, um, I, I mean, I was seven before the referendum came about, um, deciding that we weren't to be counted as flora and fauna, that we were to be counted as human beings. Mm. And um, with that, some some rights for my parents, not a lot, but some. And children were still being taken. And, and um, even the pale of you were, you were still being taken um, up till I was 12 years old. So we grew up um, with a lot of Spanish artifacts in the house and things like that. Um, so people would think we were Spanish because it was okay to be Spanish in a mining town, but you couldn't be Aboriginal. Mm. And you mentioned about the referendum. How did, you know, were you aware at that point? How old no, were you? No, no. Okay. Uh, uh, no, I, w- I was seven. Um, yeah. But as most referendums go, um, I, I think it's... Uh, absolute um, stupidity. You shouldn't have a referendum about that an Aboriginal person be counted as human Mm. instead of in flora and fauna. You shouldn't have a referendum about whether gay people should be should get married and you shouldn't have a referendum about um, indigenous people having a voice in indigenous affairs Mm. i don't know why they waste so much money when some things are are morally and ethically just simply correct Mm -hmm. and so um i assume that that's really shaped your outlook on life the experiences that you've had and you know having uh grown up as an indigenous woman and watching your family go through some of those experiences how has that um influence the way that you look at healthcare and how you offer healthcare to patients? The reason I walked away from um, acute work in the tertiary feral hospital was because pressure from um, um, my uh, father, who was a Wanarua elder, and um, and pressure because of the um, um, disparity in illness with people. Mm. So um, I... I, I I don't know why it took so long for me to figure out that I was um, working far downstream of chronic disease instead of upstream preventing it. I was working, putting band-aids on things that were long existing. Mm. Um, And I wish I had that realisation earlier, but um, it's those experiences that shape us and then send us off to do something else. Mm. So I'm jumping ahead a bit. I'm going to go back to the beginning. So tell us a bit about uh, how you came to become a nurse and the decision to go and try and get a job at Cessnock Hospital. 
<laughs> well, my father was an electrician and I idolised him. And so if he was an electrician, I wanted to be an electrician. So before I even finished year 12, um, uh, you know, and I was doing physics and chemistry and three unit maths and uh, and art and uh, but um, all to become an engineer. So I got in to do electrical engineering um, and and I thought as soon as I finished the HSC in, in November, I thought, how can I make some money to go to uni? Was there any way I looked at it, I was going to have to move away from home. Mm-hmm. And there was very little support in those days. Mm. So my best friend said, I, I'm going to be a nurse. It was so easy. I went up and saw Matron and told her I wanted to be a nurse and she hired me. So I went up and lied to Matron and said, it's all I ever wanted to be was a nurse. She hired me. I started the um, the next Monday and uh, and then that was it. My first week I, I saw a death of a lady the first day, but it was a lovely death. They'd made it, you know, very comfortable for her. Um, my second day was a cardiac arrest and we got mm. the person back. Oh. And then a few days later, there was a horn tooting outside and the lovely sister in her veil told me to go out and shut that noise up. And I ran out, opened the door and caught a baby oh. as it was coming <laughs> out of the woman. And I, I, I was already rewinding truck motors at three in the morning in a very cold shed to make some money as well. And I just thought, this is the most exciting profession on earth. <laughs> and, and um, I just couldn't imagine doing anything else. I'd already completed two TAFE courses by the time I finished year 12 in electronics and um, electrical work, but it had nothing on nursing, nothing. Well, it sounds like you had a pretty varied first week and that you were hooked, you know, thereafter. <laughs> yeah. oh, for the whole three years, a country hospital in the years of no seatbelts, Mm. you were allowed to drink and drive so acute presentations and being able to intubate and cannulate by your third year was par of the force with one country doctor coming into the hospital um you know often with a few wines under his belt so Mm. Mm. yeah it it was um it, it was very much nursing power then and uh, did you get a lot of uh, self-satisfaction and job satisfaction out of working at that level? Oh, um, I thought this was the norm everywhere. So yeah. when I finished, I then went down to Newcastle and I had a huge shock because they were training doctors. And so we didn't get to do the extent of what we did in country hospitals. Yeah. Um, you, 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 gave over to their training and um, where we were putting catheters and cannulas in and suturing people up and doing everything. Now we were reduced more mm. until I found the renal unit where um, we had a, a group of fantastic nephrologists who believed that nurses should have hands on everything. And mm. um, yeah, so um, I found my place there mm. that gave me that independence again and education. And it sounds like you were destined to become a nurse practitioner from all those days back when you first started listening to your experiences. Talk Mm. us through, um, you were part of the first generation of nurse practitioners. What was the experience like when that role was first starting and some of the challenges that we know nurse practitioners faced, particularly in the early days, but some of it still exists now, of course, too. Yes, I was going to every meeting, everything about advanced practice and, and getting 
nurses recognise as nurse practitioners. And so as soon as it came about, I um, and as it was getting closer, I, my nephrologist sent me to training and and really helped me with everything. Like I went to registrar training in Sydney every month for for years and years and years. Um, Westmead was sent with the registrars, the advanced registrars, to do everything for years. And then when it came about, I I got through the um, Viva, the three hour Viva first go and. Um, and then I became a nurse practitioner. Um, I I had to build up a, a business case that showed why I could be um, employed because they had no intention of employing me. Um, and then I got a trial and I was have a monthly review, then three monthly. And as I showed that I was reducing admissions back from community dialysis patients back to the um, uh, acute setting, um, and significantly, uh, then I had free range of that role. So I was in that role for about seven, seven or yeah, seven years. Um, and then I then, what, uh, with pressure from dad and community, I needed to go and work up street for chronic disease. So I um, I then left and went to work with my first Aboriginal medical service. And this is where. Um, um, the New South Wales Nurses Association, I would not be out there today without them. I, I was being bullied by the doctors um, um, and they were, they were giving me propaganda in my mailboxes. They put my pathology inbox out into the, um, um, on top of the trash out the back. They wrote letters how I would kill people. They oh, did goodness. all of that. Yes, and if it wasn't for the New South Wales Nurses Association stepping in and um, basically haven't had a problem since then, other than, uh, of course, access to Medicare, which mm. limit, limits the um, diagnostics we can do in that. But um, my first um, eight weeks out, if it hadn't have been for you guys, um, I would not be out there today. Well, I'm pleased that we were able to um, support you. We know how difficult it is for nurse practitioners, particularly when, you know, it started all those years ago, but it still continues now, I think. Um, oh, and gosh. what, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the challenge of nurse practitioners being able to prescribe, but not the first prescription and, you know, all of those sorts of strange anomalies that yes. make it, you know, impossible for you to do your job. Absolutely, um, to not to not be able to do a first when when you're working very remote like I am now, and where I work is the has the the highest rate of rheumatic heart disease and death of young people where I work now, mm. um, in Dumaji and Mornington Island. The only diagnostic tool to confirm that they have rheumatic heart disease, valve disease, is an echo. Mm. I am not allowed to order that echo. Mm. There is no doctor there. And we can't order. I've just had 27 cardiology referrals refused because they hadn't had an echo. Mm. Um, and, and the very perverse thing around that is that I can do an echo, they'll accept that, but I'm not allowed to order one mm. legally. Madness. The bureaucracy is madness. There's no logic to it. So tell me, what um, what motivated you to go and work for the Aboriginal Medical Service? And... Um, you were saying you're working remotely. Tell us a bit about kind of where you're located and what that looks like. 
uh, there was no choice for me. It had to be into Indigenous health. The um, the disparity in health is just so wide, and um, having a lot of members from um, up at Karua area where my nan came from, um, you know, going on to dialysis in their thirties and things like that, it was just wrong. So that it wasn't even a conscious thing. It was just that's where I would always go. Mm. And then, um, so I've worked in a lot of AMSs um, mm-hmm. with Wall Hollow um, up towards Prindai and Tamworth. I started the um, centre that's in Coldale, a bulk mm-hmm. build centre. Mm-hmm. And for the um, for nearly the five years I was there, it was just all nurses and nurse practitioners um, until a practice manager came along and said, oh, if we put a doctor here, we could make a fortune. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, not about the people. Mm. And then um, I've worked with Durry Aboriginal Medical Service in in, um, in Kempsey mm-hmm. and Birupai. I still help out um, with Walt Hollow and Birupai all the time. Um, I love those areas, love the people there and um, enjoy the work incredibly. But I got headhunted over five years ago to go up and help start a um, Aboriginal Medical Service, a primary health service um, in Doomidji. Um Fiji Healing had gotten the contract and we were um, opening the very first primary health services in these areas. In other words, they'd never had um, a, a normal doctor's clinic or, or nurse practitioner clinic to mm-hmm. be able to go to. Only um, both have hospitals. Uh, one has two rooms with three beds and the other one has two beds in mm-hmm. acute care um, so you're looking at little places, but it's all for acute. And how big is the community? How many kind of people are you servicing um, those? About um... 1,400 in both. Yeah, okay. Mornington and Doomidgee. Mm-hmm. And so um, got up there and um, we can't keep doctors. We still can't keep doctors. Mm-hmm. So there's at, the, at our peak we had five nurse practitioners mm-hmm. um, and then they thought they might have some doctors and they wanted to let us all go. Mm-hmm. And, and then, of course, they couldn't get doctors and so there's still three of us up there servicing um, Mount Isa, the whole lower gulf, the whole mm-hmm. lower gulf. Mm-hmm. So And we get doctors coming and going. Um, uh, I haven't seen... A doctor lasts more than three weeks on mm-hmm. an eight-week contract up there. Most leave after three days. They just don't stay. And um, whereas I think nurses are very loyal and don't like to be hit and miss and we tend to stay around longer in a lot of places. So mm-hmm. um, we have three of us nurse practitioners, um, one at Doomidgee, I'm at Mornington at, now. I've switched over to there and um, one covering um, Mount Isa. Um, on telehealth. And tell me, without your services, where would your community need to go to access healthcare? Oh, we have a community building. So we have a community health building. Mm-hmm. So a normal um, primary health clinic mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. they can come into. Mm-hmm. So we're not an acute service. Mm-hmm. So um, we'll do, you know, suturing, um, skin biopsies, um, things like that. So mm-hmm. if you... Um, uh, ones and twos presentation, but anything above that has to go to the um, acute, the, the hospital. Yeah. So in terms of, um, you know, the the community that you're um, treating with their rheumatic heart disease, would they have to travel to a big hospital or are there other services or has has your, has Doomagy really set up because of there not being enough service available to the community? 
so there's several aspects. Number one, you can prevent it. So um, ours is mainly caught through sores mm -hmm. and strep A infected mm -hmm. sores and, mm -hmm. and throats, but it's mainly sores. So when I first got there, the sores covering the kids were massive mm. and you'd have to give bicillin. But now we're getting on top of it more and they can have an oral antibiotic. Yeah, so right. number one, we're preventing rheumatic heart disease. Mm. Number two, those who have had acute rheumatic fever and have either GN, glomerulonephritis issues or mitral valve issues, the treatment is um, an injection of bicillin, which is like giving toothpaste, two mm -hmm. mils of toothpaste. They have to have that every month for 10 years mm -hmm. to prevent the, the valve damage going on. So we have to manage the cohort of patients that have existing rheumatic heart disease uh -huh. and then we have to manage those that have to have um, valve replacement so they will go away and have that and then we manage them post-op back in the community so uh -huh. there's there's many levels to it Pre uh -huh. that prevention side is the biggest one and and unfortunately I, I think I'll be retired before I see um, that sort of 10 years we need to get these kids through um, you know being older so that we see the reduction in rheumatic heart disease. But I just know from the, um, that we, the sores are getting not as extensive. So mm. I'm hoping we get on top of it, but there's still quite a few that present all the time. So the risk is still very high. It's remarkable though, isn't it? Like when you describe the preventative care, it feels like it's, you know, um, uh, pretty straightforward and the absence of having those you know access to those services is yeah. so significant on the lives yeah. of your community so uh, it talks Absolutely. to the importance of the work doesn't it yeah. to have the worst rheumatic heart disease in the world is a disgrace medicare is about the patient those mm. numbers are about uh, everybody having access to those numbers means the patient can choose whoever they have wherever they are it shouldn't be that I have to fly somebody out to have an echo, to go see somebody, to get an echo done, to wait them for them to get the result back. Um, and this whole process we've measured out takes is a three-month delay for that person seeing a cardiologist because we have to fly people out and put them up in, other, in Mount Isa, Cairns, Townsville to get yeah. a test done. It's, it's ridiculous. Medicare is for the consumer, for the for the person. It's not for profit for people. And yet the whole thing about, um, you know, Medicare at the moment being, oh, we're not being paid enough. Mm. Um, well, give it over. There's a lot of us who'll do the work and bulk bill and be quite happy. Yeah. And it sounds like we might have a moment in time right now with a new yes. federal government and a health minister yes. that seems fairly committed to reviewing Medicare. Um, there's been a lot of uh, recent media attention about this review of the healthcare system and Medicare more specifically um, and real appetite to look at the role of nurse practitioners and how they can better support yeah. their community. What would you want to see um, come out of this um, government in, um, program at the moment? it's really interesting when I get a doctor up there I don't know his scope of practice mm. we keep being told that people don't know what we do I don't know what a doctor will do when he come up uh, comes up I don't know whether he's done a dermatology course mm. have I done one does he do women's health 
um, has he done the mental health training? And so I think we have to drop this about, oh no, we're protecting the public from nurse practitioners by limiting their MBS. Nurse practitioners will use them according to their scope mm. and we're happy to be reviewed at any stage. So we need access to the MBS or any system that allows us to work at our full scope of what we're capable of doing mm. and for the patient's sake um, or any system that this government come up with, we have to have equal access because quite often a Medicare item number, say the COVID one, is attached to insurance mm. to be able to do that single one. So MBS is more complicated than people think um, and and we need access to that just so that we work it to our full scope of practice. We need a review of all the um, PBS items and, and the, because that hasn't been reviewed now since um, 2010. Mm -hmm. So we need a review of the PBS on, you know, continuing only um, or um, being able to initiate and do things like that because there's a lot of drugs just common diabetic drugs that um, I have nobody out there to initiate them for me. Yeah. So, so it makes it very ridiculous on what we can and can't do. Um, and nurse practitioners should be able to access all close the gap initiatives. Do you know that we were, um, we are not able to access close the gap and we work in the indigenous communities um, it's made up of mostly nurses working indigenous in indigenous communities with health workers, and we're not allowed to access the close the gap initiatives. How pathetic is that? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense at all. And just no. the kind of lack of logic, you know, that you need someone to initiate something. I know in my previous conversation with Lorna Scott, uh, who is our vice president and also a nurse practitioner, she spoke about the frustration of being a nurse practitioner in women's health and she is often far more experienced than most GPs around uh, best yes. practice and offerings yes. available to women, particularly in like perimenopause, for example, yep. but that she had to send her patients to a doctor first to initiate the very first uh, script and then she yes. could do follow-up treatment, which was just completely illogical. So she's picking up the phone and saying, I'm sending you this patient. I need you to yes. give them X, Y, Z. This is why, this is why I'm asking you to do it. Yes. They would do it because she has a good relationship with them and then she would take over the care from then on. Um, it's a, you know, unnecessary complication. Yeah, and you can't order a pelvic ultrasound or a dating scan or yeah. anything else. You, you order a full abdominal ultrasound and you, you try and write in the box with emphasis on, you know, because yes. that's the only number you got. So it, it's old. It's yes. over a decade old. Yes. And, and it shows how inadequate the MBS task force um, was that they knock back when we put evidence forward. We put solid evidence and they ignored it. Mm. And when you're ignoring good evidence, it's not for the right reason. Mm. So um, I'm glad the MBS Task Force is being reviewed and that's, that's going to happen. Um, and I think in this country, like in New Zealand and England, where pharmacists, nurse practitioners and doctors all have roles, um, it's important that absolutely we, um, yeah because we're all parts that make up the overall care 
Yeah, absolutely. And we need the multidisciplinary kind of nature of health to be able to satisfy everyone's requirements. You know, we don't have enough of any of us, so we have to find ways to work together. I think I completely agree that that's needed. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate um, chatting with you. It's been fascinating. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you think we need to cover off, Leslie? Oh, no, just that um, forget um, forget any sort of funding initiatives that, that still leave us out in the cold. Mm. We just need to be able to have access to um, the MBS and PBS because that is the current system that allow us to work to each of our individual scopes for our patient's sake. Yeah by allowing us to work to our full scope because a lot of us do work in those areas, generalists, um, this helps not only Aboriginal people but all people who live in rural and remote because mm-hmm. all people in all um, with all chronic diseases or cancers do poorly when they come from rural and remote areas. Mm. So allowing nurse practitioners to work to their full scope will help all people who live in those areas. Mm. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And I think that's been backed up by so much, you know, evidence, even uh, most recently here in New South Wales, we had a parliamentary inquiry into regional and rural health, and that demonstrated access is such a significant problem for people in regional and remote areas. Um, And exactly as you said, the quality of um, life and their um, the way that they are able to manage illness when they're in uh, rural and remote areas is also really challenged. So anything we can do to improve that, I think, is really important and, and needs to be looked at. Yes, exactly. Hmm. Okay. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. uh, And we really appreciate you making the time, particularly in such a busy, a busy day. Um, And thanks for all that you're doing. You know, I've really enjoyed chatting with you. It's been really fascinating. No worries. And thank you because my journey into private practice started with you guys defending me (laughs) so much. You can't believe it. (laughs) Pleased we could be of assistance. Definitely. Okay. All right. Thanks, Leslie. Take care. Bye. We'll be right back after a quick word about the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association's continuing professional education program. Did you know the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association has a new online CPD portal? With over 200 free online CPD courses across a wide range of nursing and midwifery topics, plus the ability to track your learning, it's definitely worth checking out. If you're a New South Wales NMA member, Just log in to the member portal, Member Central, to access this program. And if you're not yet a member, make sure you join today. That's it for this episode of The Shift. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Leslie and look forward to seeing you in a fortnight with more stories from the world of nursing and midwifery. If you haven't done so yet, be sure to subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you have an interesting story you'd like to share with us, get in touch by emailing us on the shift podcast at nswnma.asn.au. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay respects to elders past, present and emerging and recognise that this land was never ceded. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.